Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Paradox, A Different Way to Live. In this series, we will uncover the profound truths hidden within these seemingly contradictory statements as we embrace the challenge to follow Jesus' footsteps and be a catalyst for change in our world. We pray that this message is a blessing. So it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, you grab yourselves a seat. For those who have not had the delight in meeting yet, my name is Michael. It's been a little while since I've been back in Brisbane, and it's good to be here. Um, it's a lot colder in Brisbane than I remember, mainly in this building. Uh, it's warm outside. Hey, two things real fast. Uh, the first one is this, just to carry on for what Amanda said. Maybe you're sitting here going, man, uh, this new life more than thing sounds exciting, but um, I'm not called to go there. I'm actually called to stay here. And I just want to challenge you. You're actually all called to go. It's not if, it's where. And one of the hardest things for many of you will actually be the call to stay, the call to actually go to New Life Brisbane every week to serve as a part of this community. We are all sent missionaries of God. Unless it's your first time in church, in which case, welcome to the best adventure of your life. Secondly, um, uh, you know, not to you know, push conference a lot, but last year we prayed for a young man down the front who was breaking down fairly heavily as he found uh, the call of God on his life. It was messy, it was awkward, and I almost had to be like, dude, you okay? Do we need to call an ambulance? Anyway, from that moment, Dylan Ball, uh, we really felt called to plant New Life Morden. And this year at New Life Conference, what we want to do is we actually want to just not create space for church planners, but doctors, lawyers, teachers, businessmen and women, mothers and fathers, that you are all called into the world. We want to empower and equip you to do that. So love to see you there. Hey, on that note, I get to preach for the next half an hour, um, and uh, hopefully it'll feel like 15 minutes. To make sure it does, why don't we pray? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you now. And Lord, I just love that, that song we sang at the start. We are so here for you. We are so here because you are welcome in this place. God, I thank you. We don't have to beckon you to come as if you're awaiting an invitation. But we want to know as you are here, you are free to do what you want. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. What a loss it would be for my voice to be the only one we hear. Dial down the noise of our world. That's just for this sweet moment we might hear the crisp voice of your Holy Spirit through Scripture and through our soul. Less of me, more of you. And all of God's people said, amen. Friends, I wonder if you've ever missed the point. I wonder if you've ever had a point in your life where you're like, ah, just... I don't really understand what's going on here, and it's a bit bizarre. 
Uh, we started my son playing soccer at the start of this year, which is awesome. He's actually really quite good at soccer, um, surprisingly, which means that he's inherited his sporting genes completely from his mother because I am terrible at sports. For those of you who are wondering if this is just a sermon analogy, I don't know if you can see my purpling middle finger there, but I dislocated my finger yesterday playing sport, doing what everyone else usually does quite simply, just hitting the ball with my hand. I somehow formed that into a way to grievously injure myself. When I was young, my parents had a great idea that when I grew up, if I became successful at soccer, that that might actually be their pathway to freedom and, and richness and financial, you know, uh, this like sense of liberty. And so my dad, hoping one day I'd play for the greatest sport team of all time, Manchester United, um, decided that um, he would put me into soccer. The only problem is, or football, for those of you more cultured in the room, um, I didn't like soccer at all. It didn't make sense to me. Why 22 dudes would be on a field for 40 minutes, uh, 45 minutes, a half, or whatever it is, and, and like they would play a whole game and someone would score once and everyone would be like, wow, what a match. That was brilliant. They really didn't get it in the nets much at all, did they? As if that was the point. They trip over more than they hit on the goal. And I was sitting going, this doesn't make sense. So when they chucked me on to the field, I was about five years old, it, it's just, it just bothered me. I, I, and so in, not rebellion, but I have a short attention span. Any other brothers and sisters in the room, short attention spans? You may, not str- you may struggle through this sermon, but God is with you. There's this sense when I was young, I, I would struggle to actually pay attention. So they'd put me in the midfield. And as I was there on the midfield, I'd see them all playing and be like, oh, this is so cool. And I'd get bored and I did what everyone does when they get bored. I sat down and started playing with the ants and making daisy chains and all this kind of thing. And be like, Michael, the ball. I'm like, you are correct. That was a ball. You are good at this game, you know. And um, they're like, ah, oh, we've got to put Michael somewhere where we can cause little harm. So they thought the best idea was to put me in the goals. Uh, and the idea was if we just keep the ball away from the goals, we'll be fine. So I liked that idea. I got a super pretty shirt and nice grippy gloves. I was like, this is my jam. This is going to be a lot of fun. And so there I am in the goals hanging out and I'm watching the team play. I'm like, guys, you're doing really well. Of course, them doing well meant that I got even more bored than the goals. And so I turned around one moment. True story. My dad, when I preached it, he goes to our church down to Rabina. He's like, I remember that moment. You brought me shame. There was this, I turned around and, and there's this beautiful net behind me. As it was the first time I realized it. I'm like, man, I don't think anyone's clicked on that you could climb this thing. So I turn around, I like weave one arm into these nets, like up really high in my super grippy gloves, right? And I'm like, yes, this is awesome. I thought, what if I got my other arm and put it in the other side of the nets? So here I am, two arms in, and I thought, you know what? My dad did not raise an underachiever. I'm going both legs. Both legs in the nets in the middle of the game. So here I am, this five-year-old kid, both arms in the nets and both legs, being like, hey, dad, look at me. And I'm like swinging backwards and forwards, and then I hear it, this, Michael, the ball. And I look around, and there's like a five-year-old with too much testosterone for his business coming down the ball, like breathing. I'm like, oh, this, this isn't good. And so I think, well, I should get myself out. But then I realize I start to pull my super grippy gloves. I've got it tangled into the net. And I'm like, I can't get out. So I do what any self-respecting five-year-old does and I act like, a, like an electrified eel in the net. I'm just starting to shake like this. My son's, my dad's like, get out of the net. I'm like, I'm trying, dad. And everyone's like, get out the ball. Next thing happens, he kicks slow-mo. It just happens so he's like, no, into the net. The other team's like, they put the idiot in the nets. My team's like, we put Put the idiot in the nets. And my dad's like, why don't you come get a Happy Meal, mate? This is the best part of my day, Happy Meal time. And that was really much the end of my soccer and sporting career. 
But friends, the truth is, I didn't enjoy soccer because of a simple reason. I didn't understand the point of the game. I'm not sure soccer has a point, but I didn't understand what it was. I didn't understand what it was. So hear this. My understanding of why we were playing the game was in direct correlation to my enjoyment of it. And I say that because I think there are people in the room right now who are not enjoying following Jesus. That, that it's, it's difficult, it's boring, it's hard. And there's a moment where you're like, I feel like sitting down making daisy chains or like my friends have more fun than I am. I'm, I'm ready to call it quits. The problem with that, friends, is I genuinely believe there's no such thing as a boring Christianity. It's just boring Christians. People who have made this sanitized and boring rather than actually accessing the delight, the adventure, and the excitement of what it means to follow Jesus. And when I say that, the challenge to us is there are young people in the room right now, some who are young adults, but even more likely there are some who are teenagers who are watching. And they're watching you. It's creepy. But they're watching to see, do I want to stick around when I no longer have to come? There are kids right now in kids' life who they're enjoying their time, but they'll grow. And are they seeing your church with people who get it? Or people that are making this thing look like a a labor? So I want to talk about the paradox Jesus invites Peter and his disciples into. A paradox where he calls them to lay it all down. But before we get where Peter misses the point in today's scripture, I need to take you back where Peter missed the point first. About four weeks ago, Pastor Alex preached a ripper sermon, one of my favorite passages, which I actually like felt called into ministry when I when I read it and studied it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, where Jesus turns to his disciples and what does he say? Who do people say that I am? They give him some answers and he turns to them and he goes on again. He says, Who do you say that I am? And in this moment, Peter turns around, you are the Messiah. You are the living son of God. Hopefully you were here for that week. If you weren't, you can get it on the podcast. It's beautiful. But for those of you who weren't here that week, a really quick summary. Jesus turns to Peter and says, yes, you got this correct. And upon what you have just said, this rock of this revelation, I will build my ecclesia, my called out, gathered people, my church, and the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against it. Peter gets a little bit cocky in that moment, almost like that kid down the front of the class who gets one answer right and then suddenly decides he gets to teach the lesson for the rest of the class time. Everyone's like, dude, shut up. Peter then turns and Jesus starts to talk and he says, and friends, let me tell you what it's going to look like for this ecclesia, this revolution to take on the forces of darkness. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. The Pharisees, the Romans, they're going to end my life. And Peter in this moment was like, I was all for kicking Caesar's butt. I wasn't so cool for Caesar kicking your butt, Jesus. I'm not down for that. So he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus, it says. He pulls Jesus aside and he goes, hey, Jesus, a little bit like ixnaying on the whole F day stuff. Like, we aren't about that. We were thinking maybe we could get an army together, march on Rome. But this death thing, we're not so... Listen, Jesus, you were doing really well when you called me the living rock and that you were going to do some stuff with my life, but you kind of went off track when you started to talk about death. And Jesus turns to Peter, and in in a gobsmacking moment, he offers one of the harshest rebukes. What does he say? He says this. He says, Peter. He doesn't say Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For you have become a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but human concerns. Might be on the screen behind me. 
from that time on. Should be two slides in advance there. Gas, thanks so much. There's a moment. Now, number one, I think Peter probably needed a good deal of counseling after this because he went from being like the person who Jesus is going to build his church around and through, right? And the next moment, he's like, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus, I don't know if Jesus likes me or hates me. It's awkward. Like, should we have dinner together or are we like icing me out kind of thing? But what I want you to notice, not so much the Satan thing. To explain that real fast, Jesus is saying to Peter, two revelations you've received, Peter. The first revelation was a revelation of the kingdom of God that wasn't revealed to you by humanity. It was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. It was that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But Peter, you've got a second revelation. Second revelation is from the kingdom of darkness. It's a revelation of self-protection and comfort. That you actually know if you follow me, it's going to hurt. And he says, get behind me, Satan. But I want you to hear this. What does Jesus say to him next? You have become a stumbling block for me. Just think about that. Moments earlier, in one of the greatest vision casts of all time, Jesus is like, I'm going to build my ecclesia, and upon this rock, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And you're like, yeah, like the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, and you've got nothing on Jesus' church, right? We're like, this is amazing. And the next thing, Peter says one thing, and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 man, Peter, you are causing me to stumble. So what was it that Peter did that was more powerful than the very gates of darkness to the kingdom of heaven? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Never seen it before until I prepared for this sermon. He did this. He said, God's concerns, my concerns. So simple. He prioritized his concerns over the concerns of God. And I realized as I was praying and thinking about this, the heavy word of today is, friends, the single greatest stumbling block to the kingdom of God being made known in Brisbane in your life is when we do this, God's concerns, my concerns. But God, I'm, I'm wanting a partner right now. Like, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, but God, like, you know, I know you want me to talk to that person, but I've got other stuff happening. Friends, when was the last time you woke up in the morning and you're like, hey, God, what are your concerns for today? What are you thinking through? What's on your mind that I'm going to miss if I don't humble myself before you and just say, God, your concerns? And the reason why we run from that is God's concerns aren't always easy, are they? They're not always the things that feel good that we love to wrap ourselves up in late at night to feel nice, warm, and cuddly, but they're the things of the kingdom. Jesus goes on from this moment, and he says to the disciples, he turns from this, like Peter reeling from this identity crisis, not knowing he's a rock or Satan or what's going on. And Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says this. This one should be a little bit more in advance, but Kath read so beautifully from it today. He says, he turns to his disciples and says this, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think Jesus did such a great job at learning publicity or even, you know, a comms degree of understanding how to make something sound attractive. In fact, if you invited someone to church today, or if it's your first time here at New Life, this is probably the worst selling Christianity for following Jesus. If I could title this sermon something, it's the biggest reason why you should not follow Jesus. 
Why? Because this is what's going to take. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We kind of talk about this stuff a lot, like it's nice and easy and cute and comfortable. Friends, there is no one in the world that would see this on an advertising poster and be like, I am so wanting to be a part of what's going on there. Oh my gosh, they've got it. Wow. So what, what's Jesus doing? See, the beauty of Jesus is, is that he's actually not asking who am I and what's going on with my kingdom. He's not before disciples like he's doing some kind of self-esteem campaign that he's lobbying for our votes that we might support him and validate his ministry. He's here just, he's here just stating reality. Let me just tell you what this is. Let me be very clear. I'm not here to kind of dupe you. It's like a bait and switch with Jesus, right? He's not trying to paint a picture like they do with the holiday posters, being like, how beautiful is it? You rock up and you realize it's not actually that great. From the beginning, what does Jesus do? Let me tell you what it's going to be. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And who is this for? Who who is Jesus talking to? Here's the convicting part. It wasn't this pseudo group of like elite Christians or pastors or people who rock up at 320 to serve at New York, Brisbane. Like that's who he's talking to. The rest of us just got to ride on the coattails. No, no, no. He says what? Whoever wants to be my disciple must lay, must do this. It's inclusive. There's black and white here. Do you want to be Christ's disciple? It's going to take three things. Oh, I don't want to do those three things. And Jesus is pretty clear. You you must not want to be my disciple. And so we've got to actually just look at these three things for a moment and wrestle with them and not just quote them whenever we need to talk about discipleship or, you know, quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer or whatever. We actually need to wrestle well with this stuff and go, do we understand what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Christ? When 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 we think about that idea of deny yourself, what are we talking about? We live in, a a guy wrote a book about three years ago called The Cult of the Self. And The Cult of the Self was this whole idea that we live in a time like never before, although what Jesus is saying, it seems like it's been an epidemic that's been around since the dawn of time, where the self is tantamount. The self is king. The self is central. We have mantras in our society where we teach the young, hey, just be true to yourself. Go find yourself. Love yourself. You are enough. You're beautiful. Don't let anyone tell you anything different. And what we do is we create these nice little self-esteem mantras that we repeat to ourselves and share with each other because we're wanting people to feel good about themselves. Self-motivation, self-esteem. A guy named Robert Roberts, probably the most unfortunately named person in the history of mankind, or maybe the least creatively. What are we thinking we should name our son? Why don't we just double up with our last name? It's just, I can't be bothered remembering He says this, we have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct. The self is the new God. Just as in earlier times it seemed fitting never to deny God, it now seems right never to deny oneself. Be true to yourself, follow your heart, just do it. And don't let anyone tell you what to do. This is the orthodoxy of our world. Listen to this, friends. Taking up your cross is the heresy. What's he saying here? that there is a faith in our world. There's a dominant belief system. It's the belief system in the self. 
that actually we think that if we can actually meet our desires, that if our self can be sustained and our priorities met, then we will find nirvana. We will have reached a state of enlightenment where we will be happy. The problem is, is that we circulate this idea of self and we, we keep trying to make ourselves somehow happier and it becomes an ever-elusive form of our existence, like sand drifting through the hands. We're grasping at an idea that is not true. And Jesus stumps in and comes, let me tell you something far simpler, deny yourself. Now, the problem with saying this is we can think deny yourself is deny pleasure or deny goodness or deny joy. And that's also not what we're talking about. Some of you watched Netflix last night and had a good time. Jesus isn't saying throw the TV out, although for some of us could be helpful for our discipleship. Jesus is not saying if you're having a good time with another person, being like, oh, I'm enjoying this a little too much. Deny thyself. We can no longer be friends. Like, Pleasure and joy were created by God for us to glorify Him, friends. We're not talking about this kind of, you know, masochism of our faith. What Jesus is talking about here is it may be correctly penned by a great writer. If you want to get into theology, here's a good place to start with A.W. Tozer. He says this, The meaning of self-denial is, an, is not an infliction of personal torment nor penance, but simply the giving up of the very principle of living for ourselves. It is completely changing the direction of our being and will so that no longer in any sense do we act concerning how anything will affect us, but our one thought, our one thought is how it will affect God or others. What Jesus seems to be saying here is when you join the kingdom of God, it comes with a tea towel. It comes with a service. It comes with a sense of like, I no longer am central. I remember the moment when my dad told me the first time, Michael, the world doesn't revolve around you. Boof. What? Do you remember that moment when your parents are like, the universe isn't all about you? And you're like, you're kidding me. For most of my life, I actually thought the Truman Show was real and I was the star. I need to recognize it's such a self, some, uh, probably not a funny joke or you haven't seen the Truman Show. Let's hope it's the second for my own self-esteem. Am I right? Deny yourself, Michael. We'll keep moving. What's the issue here? What's Jesus trying to do? He's getting to the heart of the root of the problem. If you've heard me preach on this, you'll hear it again because as we say so often, there's no formation without repetition. And so I want to talk about why Jesus says deny yourself is because it's the root of the problem. In Genesis 3, what happens in that moment when Adam and Eve fell short of the glory of God, they weren't sitting there thinking, what would be really good for everybody here? Let's take a vote. No, what they were thinking was this. I want to be as great, if not greater than God. I. See, what happened, for those of you who know, you would know, we've said this before, the Latin understanding is incavatus in say, the heart, sin is this, friends, the heart curving in on itself. Incavatus in say. Some of you thought you were coming for a sermon, you're going to leave bilingual, you're welcome. What does it mean for the heart to curve in on itself? It means that everything is motivated by my needs. Jesus in a moment says something really interesting. He says, uncurve your heart. Uncurve your heart. And it's challenging to us, right? Because we don't live in a society which says that's the way to happiness. And it's not like some tokenistic, because we've all got iPods and iPads and iMacs, and someone's like, they don't call them iMacs. And it's like, just for the sake of the analogy, let's keep moving. But it's, it's more than that. It's that for them to sell anything to us, for, for, for culture to want us to buy into anything, it actually starts to feed and sense our selfishness, our selfish desires for our kingdom, our needs, and our priorities to grow, for human concerns to supersede God's concerns. And Jesus comes along and he says, I'm actually I'm inviting you to a different way. 
Deny yourself, he says. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And what's most challenging about this when I preach it is how often I don't live it. And I realize that the next part of what Jesus says is equally as important. Take up your cross. They're mutually inclusive ideas. Take up your cross is the path of self-denial. Now, the cross, if you've been in the church for the last 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 60 years, Bruce and Kathy. There's this sense, right, where you will have heard this at some stage, that we've, de- we've sanitized the cross because we've made it into jewelry, into tattoos, into clothes, into fashion items. And as kitschy as it sounds, I think we still haven't recognized how true this is. We wear the cross as if it's a cool piece of jewelry or a nice testimony of where we've been without recognizing the bloody horror of what it represents. A pastor once showed his friend through a church. They've just done renovations. And in the middle of their church, um, he, he wanted to take his friend through. So he's like, oh, look at this baptistry. Look at the seats and look at all these things. He brought his friends. True story. Uh, brought right down to the middle of the sanctuary where he had a beautiful cross, like exquisite carpentry. And it was, it was, it was a cross de la creme, right? It was, it was a fantastic piece of art, artistry. And he said, look at this. In the center of our church is the cross of Christ. That cost us $10,000. It's worth it. And the Christian friend said, man, you got ripped off. They used to give those to Christians for free. What's he saying? 2,000 years ago, you didn't have to pay for it with anything but political rebellion. And the Romans would willingly line the Appian Way with thousands. Jesus wasn't the only person to be crucified. To be crucified in the Roman world meant that you were a political upstart. It meant that they wanted to pin you up as a form of propaganda in front of the whole world and say, this is what Rome does to those who oppose our might. How great is the empire? You would be scourged. You would be beaten. You would be flogged. There was nothing pretty about it. And as you, as you hung there, having to lift yourself up by your wrists just to breathe, people would walk by you and see you utterly humiliated and defeated. And here's the interesting part. When Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross, all they knew of the cross was the Roman exquisite form of torture. Easter hadn't happened yet. Just think about that. For the disciples, Jesus said, take up your cross. And all they could think through was, Jesus, crosses are torture. Why would you want us to, if someone's carrying a cross, they're going to die Jesus, what the heck are you talking about? It's like, you know, Billy Graham would say this. It was almost equivalent of Jesus saying, take up your gas chamber, your lethal injection, take up your electric chair, and follow me, friends. And we miss that because Easter is such a story of victory, we forget the horror of the cross. That the cross is a form of death. And so when you sit with the disciples, you really recognize they're going to probably have a long night of thinking ahead of them. Peter's just been called Satan. And then the next thing that happens, he's like, deny yourself and take up your form of torture and follow me. Why is he saying this? Because he's trying to shock them into a reality where he's saying, you didn't want to follow me to, to Golgotha. Friends, it's where I'm going to lead every single one that's my disciples because to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus is when, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, Jesus beckons those to come follow him to come and die. Die to yourself. 
die to all that which seeks to reign against Christ in our lives. Friends, if we were to take stock of everyone in this room, would we be able to say, I have died to myself today? All throughout the Bible, or not all throughout the Bible, Paul didn't write the whole Bible, but he wrote a good portion of the New Testament, and he would often say these things like, I die daily. I've been crucified with Christ, which is an oxymoronic because Paul is writing these things saying, I died today. And we're like, well, you didn't because you're, right. you're writing that. So what's Paul talking about? He's talking not about a physical reality, but a spiritual reality. Christ did the physical reality that we might have the courage to do the spiritual reality with him. I die to my flesh. I die to that which in me screams, live for yourself. Build your kingdom. And Jesus then has the tenacity to go, so who's up for it? Come follow me. Some of you are like, Michael, I brought my friend from work today. He thought Christians were crazy, and thanks for proving it. Alpha would have been a better option. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Definitely sign up for Alpha next time we do it. But here's the thing. You have a correct understanding of what this is going to be. So here's my question. And friends, there was a guy who put up his hand every service on the Gold Coast when I asked this one, so just rhetorical. But how many of us, if we were actually in the disciples' shoes, would turn around and hear this and be like, I'm in. Come on. Deny myself, take up my cross of torture and die to myself every, oh, yeah, let's go. The truth is, if we're honest, probably not many of us. So here's my question. Why on earth... Would we follow Jesus? This is going to be the worst marketing campaign for a lifestyle in the history of mankind. Why? Because of these last two words, follow me. Where is he leading us? Where is he leading us? See, this carpenter Messiah, this rogue man who knew weird things about where to fish, He's not just leading them to Jerusalem. He's leading them to Golgotha, the place of death. But friends, does it finish at Golgotha? Does it stop with a cross? You know the story. It doesn't stop with an empty cross, but it finishes with an empty tomb. See, Jesus is saying this, follow me not just into death, but into life as well. See, the reason why so many of us in this room claim Jesus Christ to be our Lord our Savior, not just our friend. I thought it was beautiful when Amanda said, the Lord has said. Did you know a lot of people in Christianity today no longer call Jesus Lord because it's easier to call Him friend? It's far more revolutionary to say, He is my Lord. He is my King. He is my Savior. And He's also mind-blowingly my friend. The Lord of Lords leads us not just to death, but to life and life to the full. Some of you are grasping at life, thinking that on the other side of it, somehow you will find something to satisfy you. And even though you're a Christian, you're feeling like you are drinking sand. You're still thirsty. It's because we add Jesus to our lives. We're thinking if we can just like just add water and suddenly everything gets better. That's why we sing these songs where it says, Jesus Christ is either Lord of everything or He's Lord of nothing. Why? Because you being in control of any part of our life was the very thing that landed the world in the darkness it's in in the first place. So Jesus turns to His disciples and says, follow me and I will give you life. And I'll give you life to the full. And friends, the reason why we follow Jesus isn't because He meets our demands, but He gives us what our heart and soul truly, desperately needs. 
He gives us life. And I want to challenge you today, if you do not know the life that Jesus Christ has on offer, let me ask you two questions. Have you denied yourself? And have you taken up your cross and truly followed Him? Too many times we even engage in church in a way which is pseudo-Christian. We're still at the center, aren't we? We attend churches and we arrive when we want to. We participate how we feel. And we decide if we enjoyed the set list or even the songs or the small group or the way the church is structured. How many of us in preparation for church today took ourselves out of the picture and said, Jesus, I die to myself as I rock up at New Life Brisbane. How might you use me in this community today? We can kind of think this is an issue for a new Christian in the room. I think it's an issue for all of us. Deny yourself. Imagine imagine what this community would look like if it was filled with a group of disciples like, man, we're not about ourselves. We're about taking up our cross and following him into life and life to the full. He then goes on to this weird thing where he actually points to this. And Jesus says this. He says these controversial things. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever will lose their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Back before COVID, when I was young and 18, um, I remember that there used to be this phenomenon where people would finish school and they would go to Europe to find themselves. Does anyone remember this? Did anyone do it? No? Okay, just a couple of us. Hey, how did you go? Um, there's a sense, or like I go to a, you know, an American summer camp. All power to you. It's great. But there's this language of, I just got to go find myself. And Jesus seems to be highlighting here that, that that's actually part of the problem. That like when you find yourself, you, you kind of need to go, I need to lose you again. I need to run in the other direction. So if you go to Europe and in the middle of an Italian, like, I don't know, like festival, you find yourself, Jesus is saying, get rid of that and run in the opposite direction because that thing you just found is the very reason why you're, and then we think that we actually got to go somewhere to find the very thing that was actually with us where we were the whole time. Jesus says, lose yourself because here's what Jesus is saying. I created you for a life and this isn't it. Cling to it and you'll miss it. Let it go. And you'll find me. Friends, what are we clinging to right now? There's this great story from the Crusades. And the Crusades are a grotesquely, morally um, dark time in the history of humanity. It's not just a Christian darkness. It's just the darkness for everybody involved. But there's this one myth that comes out of it about the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar, in a moment would actually, before they went to the Crusades, they would don all of their armor and they would go and be baptized, fully submerged in their armor. And as they went underwater, they would hold their sword above the waters. And it was their way of saying, God, you have all of my life, but you don't have my sword. Because what I'm going to do for my, with my sword, you won't like. So I'll do darkness with my sword, but you can have the rest of me. And I just want to challenge us today that maybe what Jesus is talking about here is being willing to hold nothing above the water. What in your life are you still holding above the water? You're still saying, Jesus, you can have all of me, but not my sexuality, not my marriage, not my children. You can have all of me, Jesus, but not my finances, not my future. And we would know from the Crusades, did Jesus really have them at all? 
guy named Ignatius Loyola defines sin like this. Sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Friends, some of us are really struggling to trust that Jesus wants you to be happy today. But here's the beauty of the Christian life. He says, deny yourself. Your happiness is not found in your physical comfort. Take up your cross. Your happiness will not be found in moments of safety. See, happiness for the Christian, those who really follow Jesus, can get cancer diagnosis and still no joy. Happiness for the Christian could be someone who's walking through an utter valley of darkness and still feel like the light shines because their understanding of what goodness and happiness is isn't circumstantial, it's eternal. And friends, some of us tie too much of how we feel to what we're walking through rather than who we're walking with. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Jesus is asking Peter and the disciples a simple question. Will you surrender all and find it all? To finish today, my wife and I recently, um, we bought bookcases. Used to live in Brisbane, for those of you who know, we moved down to the Gold Coast, and it's taken us two and a half years to unpack my books. And I love books. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but I had this narrative in my head that as soon as we get the bookcases, life is just going to be mint. Like, it's just going to be so good. And, and we'd been saving up for these bookcases. We're like, we were going to go, you know, the Billy bookcase from Ikea, but we went like the next option up. We like saved for a long time. We're like, this is going to be so great. We're excited. I spent like 12 ungodly hours doing the flat pack thing, which is like, I'm going to talk to someone about that some stage. But when they were built, friends, they were exquisite. And we put all the books in. And then for a whole Sunday afternoon, some of you watch TV, we just stared at our bookcases. But then Sarah turned to me, and like legitimately, this was a conversation we had. She turned to me, and she was, we were walking through some stuff, and we were just so excited about getting furniture for our house. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment. You're like, I'm so excited. You know when you grow up, when you're like, I'm so excited for furniture. <laughs> so the guy's excited for his lawn. You're like, dude, you old. And there's this moment where she turns to me, and we're just looking at our bookcase, and she just says, huh. I'm like, what? She goes, man, Jesus is really the only thing that can satisfy, hey. I'm like, I spent 12 hours bit soon. But what was she saying? In that moment, we both felt it. We just thought that we'd, we'd just feel better. And it's like we held something above the water still thinking it would give us life or the thing that we wanted. So we burnt the bookcases. No, we didn't really. <laughs> They're still there. My pride and joy. But God's been challenging me about this a lot lately. Michael, do I have all of you? Not just the stuff that people see on the platform. It's pretty easy to look like I've surrendered to God up here. I've got the microphone. I can just tell you. But there are these private, intimate moments where it's just like, only God knows. Friends, does he have all of you? Do you know life and life to the full? That's what's on offer today. Have you surrendered all? Let's pray. Gracious God, as we pause in this moment, I just want to ask a simple question. Friends, have you surrendered everything to Christ? As you're praying right now, I just want to ask, have you surrendered all? And if you've never done that, 
I wonder if right now for the first time with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would make the decision right now tonight, I want to surrender all to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness for living for myself and turn to him. Friends, if that's you and you would love to surrender everything to Christ tonight, in this moment right now, I'll just invite you. Would you raise your hand with me? Would you raise your hand? I'd love to pray for you. It's awesome, bro. Thank you for raising your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else? Let's pray a prayer with a brother who just wants to surrender it all to Jesus. Would you pray this prayer with me, the whole room? Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin, for my selfishness. I want to surrender all. Teach me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. Be my Lord, my Savior, my friend. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, I thank you right now for everyone who either responded with a hand or ended up with a heart. In Jesus' mighty name, would this be a church and a people and ecclesia marked by a radical cost of discipleship for your glory. For the rest of us, I just want you to stay in this moment and posture of prayer. I want you to dwell on that. Those of you in the room who are followers of Christ, have you surrendered all? Now I was going to sing a song called I Surrender. And I actually want to invite you not to sing it. I just want you to stay where you are. And when you're ready and you've decided to submerge the sword, then stand and sing. But let's not race towards it until we've done business with God saying, Jesus, what am I still holding above the water? What's not yet yours? And you might stand at the beginning of the song. You might wait to the very end. In fact, friends, you might even feel so called to come down the front and kneel. And I'd invite you to do any and all of the above. But do nothing because anyone else is doing it. Because the disciples who followed Jesus, peer pressure wasn't enough to carry them through. It had to be real. So would you really make a decision today to surrender all to Christ? Let them sing the song over you. And when you're ready, would you stand and declare... I surrender. Let's wait on God together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.